Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Don't forget to pack the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies for a post-errands pick-me-up. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm Alec Baldwin. And you're listening to Here's the Thing. Butch Walker is one of the great contemporary talents of rock. He's written songs and produced tracks for the likes of Panic at the Disco, Pink, and Weezer. So he has fans all over the industry. Even Taylor Swift fell in love with one of his Taylor Swift covers. That's what led to their joint appearance at the Grammys, Butch on his banjo limb. She's upset. She's going up about something that you said. She In fact, Walker's reputation as the LA music scene's great collaborator has sometimes eclipsed his brilliant, eclectic solo career. I hope hearing him today will turn you on to or reignite your love for his remarkable body of work. As a 10 year old heavy metal fan in rural Georgia, Butch Walker was already a multi instrumentalist. His career went on to span hard rock, grunge, and now he's putting out soulful, lyrics-focused rock with great pop hooks. Throughout it all, his music has always been honest and original and catchy. When I was in Los Angeles not too long ago, I arranged to meet Butch at a music venue in Hollywood so he could play some of his great songs in front of a live audience and tell me about his path from the Bible Belt to the heart of L.A.'s music scene. Is this on? Hey, can you all hear me? No, no. I'm going to play some of my early stuff. Then, of course, I'm going to play some of my new stuff, too. I hope you don't mind. Uh, welcome to... This is a recording of my podcast... Here's the thing, which is produced by WNYC Studios in New York. I want to thank, uh, yeah, thank you. And I want to thank um, KPCC here in Los Angeles. And I want to thank Catalina. I'm told the Catalina Bar and Grill, there is an actual Catalina. So please join me in welcoming Butch Walker. Thank you. 
Wow, wow, wow. Well, the first thing I want to say is, you told me you were going to play the guitar. What's with the piano? Uh, no. How many instruments do you play? None. <laughs> <laughs> I just, um, they call it a jack of all trades, I guess. What did you start out on? I uh, started out on drums, and uh, I was very terrible at that, uh, according to my older sisters. Started in the bedroom. I was eight years old, and my parents made the grave mistake of taking me to see this rock band called Kiss. I was very obsessed as a young metalhead. And, uh, I, I hear strands of Kiss in your music. Yeah. I hear that. <laughs> that one for sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, but my dad was reluctant to go to the show because he was this mountain man with a, you know. Georgia. Yeah, North Georgia mountains, and he loved, um, the accent will come out, don't worry, after a couple of sips. Um, he was begrudgingly, you know, at this Kiss show because he liked country music, and he wasn't signing up for this and all these guys. It was 1977, I was eight years old, and he's wearing this new brown blazer that his mother had gotten him. I just remember everybody there dressed up like, the members of KISS in the audience. You know, you had, like, guys that were all, like, yeah. 25 years old, dressed up as Gene and Paul and yeah. all these guys with the boots and the whole thing. Peter and Chris. Yes. There was uh, Paul and Gene sitting behind us, and they kept passing, like, joints over my mom and dad to other people because it was the 70s. It was a looser time. You know, here I am, eight years old, smelling pot for the first time, seeing it passed by a guy dressed in Gene Simmons makeup. And You're eight years old? Yeah, and um, my... My dad. Was this like a Make-A-Wish Foundation thing? Did you tell <laughs> you them would, when you were dying? Yeah, so you want to yeah. go to a Kiss concert? It, How did that it, happen? It would have been my dying wish for sure. And, uh, and I looked over, and in a strobe, I could see my dad choking out Gene Simmons like this <laughs> behind me before the concert even started. And I was like, this is the best fucking You're night ever. <laughs> <laughs> so, and that started me. Were you really me, eight years old? I was eight, and that kind of started me on oh my, my road God. to this. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of started trying to play drums the next day. That was, as you do as a kid, you're, you're attracted to drums. They're primal. And um, I realized I didn't like being behind everybody. I wanted to be out front. And so whenever I was playing with this little band that um, was in, we practiced in my bedroom up in the attic, uh, and they were all like my sister's boyfriends. They were older dudes that were already able to drive and, we were playing like REO Speedwagon covers and trying to play Get Through a Rush song, which failed miserably after two bars. They would leave the gear there, and I would see that guitar over in the corner next to my Charlie McCarthy ventriloquist doll. And be like, because I was still so young, you know? And so I would go over and pick up his guitar, and then I started learning like on one string how to like pick out songs and play along to the radio. And next thing you know, I think my mom... Uh, just was overhearing it and thinking like, oh, because she's, she's the musical talent in my family. What'd she play? Uh, sings and plays piano, and she's very good. You learned to play yourself? For myself, by myself, and with myself. Uh, <laughs> uh, around that time, a lot. And, uh, <laughs> that changes eventually, though, right? It does, right? it does. Yeah. Uh, but, um, <laughs> I mean, well, why be a famous musician if not? Well, never mind, anyway, so... <laughs> So um, I ended up uh, getting lessons because my mom was like, I think he's got talent to do this. And so um, I ended up taking lessons from a guy locally in Cartersville, this little town I was from. And uh, he was great. Uh, he taught me, you know, taught me Van Halen songs and all the, the essentials, you know. Yeah. And, um, and I was, you know, learning very fast. So um, 
just it, I got obsessed with it, and and I kind of never looked back from then. I stayed stayed true to guitar, you know, guitar pretty much the rest of my time. Now, do you think that for people? I mean, when people ask me all the time. They say, if you take acting lessons, can you make it a make you a good actor? I say, and you know, in my opinion, it can make you a better actor than when you walk in the door, but it can't make you a good actor. You have to have some inspiration. You have to have some gift that people have that's uh, uh, that's different. Uh, do you feel the same way about guitar playing? Do you feel that you had just a, a passion for it? I think so. I, I think I think I knew I could do it just because I was I had a good ear for picking out. I could pick out stuff on the radio so quickly, and I could I didn't. It was like learning to run before you could walk. Though I didn't know how to. I didn't have any knowledge of it or chords or anything. Just kind of had the ear and the muscle memory to be able to pick it out and play it. And so, you know, next thing you know, it'd be like my parents having their fondue parties and shit, and they would be coming upstairs, and I'd be upstairs just playing along to records, and they'd be like, you know, my mom would be like, play that Pretender song, you know, and so I'd be like, you know, for for company, and so I would end up playing little concerts in my room for all of, for all, for all of their party uh, guests. Were people smoking pot and your father choking people out at the fondue party? <laughs> no, it was pretty civilized. He was mellow. Yeah, okay, yeah. yeah, those were That civilized. was a one-off. The kiss thing was a one-off. He, 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 yeah. <laughs> Later in life, I came to find he was a, he was a terror. Right. I mean, you're in Cartersville till you're how old? I was in Cartersville till I graduated high school, which so you I... You were there your whole childhood? Yeah. In one town? Yeah. And what was the music scene like locally? None. Um, so there was no, no 40 music. watt club, no Athens. No, music Cartersville scene. was kind of sequestered because it was between Athens and Atlanta. I was too young for most of that time at, at home to do anything or to go anywhere and play anywhere. You know, I did get into a band in Rome, Georgia, which was about 20 minutes north of Cartersville, and that's where I could find musicians because in Cartersville it was kind of a little bit of a footloose vibe. There was like nobody, nobody playing unless it was the Lord's music, and. <laughs> And so, you know, I, would, I worked at the local music store where I would, I would teach guitar lessons when I was a teenager. And, you know, dudes would come in and I started to grow my hair out. And they'd be like, I bet you play that Satan music. And then I would be like, oh, well, what's the picture of Jesus look like above your mantle? How short is his hair? I wanted out. The guys that I was playing with from Rome, they were all my age, basically. And um, we started playing this one club in Rome that was basically a, uh, it was, it was a former pizza hut. <laughs> and, uh, we would go in there and this was during the height of like, like mid eighties, eighties metal. And we would build homemade bombs on stage and fire and pyro and blow the drop ceiling out of the place like this. And I mean, I can't believe it's still standing. Did you have any permits to do that? No, <laughs> no. Uh, we, I, I had a key to the place. That's how loose this place was. I was 16 and I had a key to this bar. We had a mattress under the drum riser, and we would go in there. If we had been partying or driving around too much, we would go in there and raid the bar. I can't believe I'm telling everybody this. And then, and then, we, would, and then we would all pull out the mattresses and just pass out in a club. And I'd wake so you up. you lived at the club, basically. Pretty much. And uh, this was called Ronnie's Rock Cafe. And in Atlanta, there was a place I used to go play uh, called Danny's. It was a metal bar on 40, Highway 41 in Smyrna. And I would go there and I would play six nights a week and we'd do three cover band sets a night because you weren't, you weren't allowed to play original music back then at any of the bars, even in Atlanta, which was a pretty you know, big city. 
if you were doing the hard rock scene at the time, you had to play covers. And that was my reason for wanting to take the band and all of us moved to Los Angeles, which is what we did. How old were you then? 17. It was 88. And I, I moved here with the guys and we lived in, we, if I can recall, we lived, we, we kind of lived around in our van. We lived in a motel for a little bit. And then we found an apartment five blocks from here. Hollywood and Whitley. And, um, and yeah, oh man, dreams do come true. And uh, so we were, you know, we were, we were sitting there, six of us in a one bedroom, unair conditioned apartment, you know. I read that. Smelled so good. Yeah. And, uh, but we loved it. We were having the time of our life. It was, that was our college. None of us went to college or barely finished high school. Um, so we came out here at the height of the Guns N' Roses, Poison, Motley Crue, Rat, all of that, like the, all those bands. Um, that was huge for us. So we came out here and ended up in the belly of the beast, and we started right away. We pounded the pavement and found out what we needed to do. This was pre-cell phones and pre-internet, pre-anything. So it was like we had no idea what to expect. Um, I had a girlfriend at the time who was already out here working at the Tropicana. (laughs) It's so cliche. Um, But she was from Georgia, and so she moved out and got a uh, dancing job. And she would send me flyers of all the bands that were flyering on the Sunset Strip. And that's, that's how I learned what they looked like, how they dressed, the whole image of everything. So we came out here and um, we immediately hit the printer shop and we printed up flyers for our first show that we were ever able to get booked to play. Uh, we played the Whiskey, our first show, and we only had five originals, so we had to play them twice. <laughs> we're going to play this song again we're going to play it slower yeah. <laughs> and we ended up uh, getting written up in this magazine at the time that was a local rag called the Rock City News and they, they loved us so they were like Titus Band on the Sunset Strip they said and we were like we only have five songs but we got good and we, we definitely learned because we were fueled by all these other it was very competitive it was saturated it was thousands of dudes that looked just alike getting off the bus all on the sunset strip just like yeah just like the guns and roses videos the hay out of the mouth and um basically we're just down there on the strip promoting and and grassroots marketing ourselves and trying to convince people to buy tickets to our show after they just got a flyer and dropped it on the ground from the band in front of us now when you're in it when you're a young guy and you're in a band did you enjoy being in a band and did you enjoy the camaraderie or was there a part of you all along you thought I'd like to be solo? No, no, I enjoyed it. And at the time I should preface that I was just the guitar player then uh, in the band that came out here. So I wasn't the lead singer. Um, I sang and I was able to do all the harmonies and uh, even help. Who with was the lead singer? Uh, Lee Singer was a guy named Jesse, and then uh, I came out here with him and Jace and my drummer Slug. And um, so basically, I loved being a guitar player. I loved being in a band. I loved that camaraderie. Uh, You're not the front man. I'm not the front man. Why? Yet. Right, but that's what I want to get to. Why? Well, I don't know. I, at the time, it was very much a, an image of the front man was 
you know, no instrument, just a mic stand, you know, the teased out blonde hair. It was all just right. part of a, it was all part of a blueprint to us. Mm -hmm. We didn't know that it could be Jesse fit any the bill. different. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and he was a great, like, hard rock singer. And so that was kind of important. Where is he now? Uh, he's back in... Jesse, can I have my check, please? <laughs> no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. No, I... Uh, so, yeah, they're, they're back in... Uh... I'm joking. I know you are. Uh, he, <laughs> they're all three still in Georgia, actually, and um, they're still on that mattress <laughs> in Rome yeah, under the drum stand. That mattress won't die. That mattress is a mess. Uh, it's a mess. It's horrible. No, but 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 but, but, uh, but so the name of the band again when you were with them was uh, it was a band called South Gang, and um, we were and that oh lasts for God. how long? Not long, four or five years. Uh, Let's see, we moved out in 88, and by, by 92, I think, 92, we were, we were cooked. And what happened? Everything. So we, how much time do you have? <laughs> I want to hear, we're here um, to hear about your story, man. I'll tell you. Um, so, well, besides the fact that we were kind of growing apart, and I'm going to spare the bloody details because I respect all of the guys very much, but, very you cool. know, we, just like anything, and it goes back to your question about did I enjoy being in a band and that camaraderie, it comes to an end sometimes, that does, and people start growing apart, especially when you start playing together when you're teenagers. I mean, it's like getting married when you're a teenager, and then by the time you're 30, you're, you're, you're different people, and you hope that you grew together, not apart. Uh, but long story long, we were touring and touring and touring. The scene uh, that we were in was definitely starting to transition uh, to, like, grunge was very, was on the, was on the horizon. Um, we could see that that was going to be an interesting change in, in music. And I was all for it. I was kind of like, well, I'm still a sponge. I'm still soaking all this up. I still want to learn every kind of music. I loved every kind of music growing up. My sister's record collection was everything from you know, Parliament to the Bee Gees to you name it. And so I liked, I liked everything. I liked disco. You I like liked good music. I liked it. everything. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I just didn't feel like sticking to one kind of music was, was going to satisfy my soul. And um, so, you know, we started kind of growing apart that way. And then we went on a tour in China. And we were there for six weeks. And it went everything you could possibly think of that could go wrong went wrong. Uh, we were the first American rock band to ever tour China. <laughs> Should have been the last wow. because we were there. It was, oh, I don't even have enough time to tell you all the stories of how incredibly like, like heartbreaking and emotional and crazy it was, you know. In um, what way? Well, okay. I'll edit it down uh, to the end of the China run when we were all basically in different train cars going to cities which were 30 hours apart. And we had a lot of time to contemplate. Um, we were over here. Our label got basically just wanted to kind of get rid of us because this our first record deal was a major label deal, uh, which you know I'm happy to get into that side of it if you want. But it's like that was that was like you know getting a lot of things handed to us. You know, a big advance to do a big budget record with a big budget producer, big video. When with they the, believe in you, they go. That's right. Yeah, and, they give you but, money, but. Um, no one else believed in us. <laughs> so uh, our management kind of wanted to just get rid of us. So this whole thing was kind of a little bit of a get them over and get them out of our hair situation. And so we were over there and realizing that what was not 
really the case, which was like, we're not going to really make any money from this. We're not going to really uh, make it, break any ground from it. Um, and um, me and the bass player, Jace, would sit in one train car and we were plotting our breaking up the band. And he kept saying, you should be the singer. You should be the singer. And I was like, I'm not a singer. I have dark hair, you know. <laughs> and, um, and so it, eventually we just you know, we started thinking of a new band name. We started thinking of it while we were on this train ride over there. And as fate would have it, um, we were in one of the cities playing, which, by the way, I should mention that we were playing all hockey arenas, and a band that couldn't get arrested in the States, and we're playing hockey arenas, and, and some places were playing on the fucking ice, like sliding all over. The, they didn't have, the production was awful. It was the weirdest <laughs> shit. They weren't allowed uh, on the floor. They had to be in the stands. The closest person was 100 feet away. They weren't allowed to stand up. There was like, you know, military guards around the whole place every time. They weren't allowed to yell. They could only just clap after every song and sit. So enjoy your freedom, everyone in America, because uh, at the time, they did not have that. So the last show we played, which was not supposed to be the last show, it was the third of the last show, and we went to this town called Jilin, and we played more of a scaled-down, like, um, gymnasium almost. And so there was no way for the people to be anywhere but right in front of us, so they made them all sit cross-legged on the floor. No chairs. And um, when that show was happening, uh, it, it was the closest we were able to get to people, so we were very excited because we'd been there for six weeks and couldn't even have any, like, energy with a crowd whatsoever. It just felt like we were monkeys on display. And so in this one, we were just like, we were jumping off the stage and making people get up, and that was a no-no. Um, so we get back, you know, we're up on stage, and then all of a sudden these people start getting up, and then they start running up on stage. And then a little bit of that, like, um, thing where uh, the, the mania kicked in, and they're, like, pulling our... We had very long hair, and they're pulling it and trying to pull us off the stage, and, like, guys and girls, like, trying to, you know, kiss you on the mouth, and... and um, and, it, and, it, and they were throwing, like, money and, and uh, candy. And it, it was a really... It was, a, it was like a weird Fellini movie, but, like the, but if you would imagine, like, Hard Day's Night, but not. Yeah. <laughs> Harder Day's Night. And so we, um, we basically uh, incited a riot. And so they tear-gassed the place, and we were whisked off the stage. Keep in mind, we're just young fucking rednecks with leather jackets and long hair and we think this is awesome we think this is the best thing we've ever experienced we're just like high-fiving getting in a van going off like yeah we finally got some action we got some interaction we're doing this this is great we're connecting with the people and then like we get on a train we fall asleep and we wake up and we are in beijing at the airport no translators no managers no one to be found and no cell phones, no internet, no nothing. So, like, we're, like, sitting there. We don't know where our gear is. We don't know where anything is. We see plane tickets uh, at our feet. And uh, basically, they're just, that's in, in, in implying that get the fuck out of here and go home. And we couldn't, you know. We didn't know how to, we, we couldn't speak the language. We had no translator at this mm. point. They'd all left. Very isolating. Yes, very isolating. And, and for kids in their early 20s, it was frightening. We were very scared. We'd never been out of the country before, any of us. So, you know, we're, we're calling back home on pay phones, waking our dads up, you know, trying to figure out, like, how to get our gear. Our gear was 30 hours back. 
um, and the way that they transported the gear to these things was literally by open truck, like, like, it's like watching an episode of M.A.S.H., you know, and there'd just be like open trucks with our road cases and stuff of all of our gear that came over from America, and we rented a bunch of gear for it, so like, we were like, we're not going back home, we're going to get sued by the gear companies as well for not having any of our gear and our prized guitars and everything if we don't get home, so um, this is a great story about our crew. Um, uh, Robert Ragman Long and Scary Larry Cromer, they offered to go back by car to the last town, 30 hours away, find the gear, and come home with it. And they rode home on the road cases in the cargo plane on top of that 15 hours to make sure our gear got back to the States. And uh, Larry moved out from Rome, Georgia with me to uh, L.A. I taught him how to string a guitar. Um, Those guys, not surprisingly, went on to be... um, Two of the biggest, uh, most successful road crew guys you'll ever meet. Uh, they both work, they both, guess who they work for? Kiss. <laughs> <laughs> it all comes around. It certainly does. Yeah, when you decided this group, when you, when you come back, it's over. We got back and we started a new band immediately and just were fueled by um, uh, just doing things DIY. But you were the front man at this point. I was then, yes. And, 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 I, started, I started being the front man for this new band. And what did you feel that required from you that you didn't have to display before? Was there a thing you felt you had to... I actually didn't know how to be a front man. I'd never done it, really. So I, and, and I certainly knew that I was a guitar player first and foremost, so I was not going to what they call freehand and like to put the guitar, put the guitar down because I don't know what to do with a mic stand while I'm playing. So it's like I need a guitar on it. It became the crutch, right? Uh, but I, I got really, I got comfortable with it really quick because we played like 200 shows a year and we started just playing 200 shows a year every year and, you know, for, for what would become the better part of 20 years. I think I, I got pretty good at it, I guess, if I can be not humble. Uh, pretty good at what? Being a front man. Uh, <laughs> Musician and producer Butch Walker. Another L.A. music act I love is the band Perta, which is perched on the edge of stardom. Its frontman, Matt Bazolka, has the voice, presence, and look of a once-in-a-generation rock star. But they're not there yet. How many jobs are you working now? Uh, I'd say two and a half. And what are they, if you want to say? Mm, half. Um, I do work for Starbucks. Mm-hmm. That one is probably the one I'm ready to get rid of the most. Mm-hmm. I love them, and they're a great company, but 4.30 in the morning, five days a week. It's no! fucking hard, yeah. Um, Got to get you yeah. out of that right away. Usual days, like 4.30 to 1. Last year, I said that this interview would end up being our most downloaded of 2020, and I stand by that prediction. You can beat the crowds by texting P-E-R-T-A... That's P-E-R-T-A to 70101 now. We'll send you a link to my full interview with Matt and his bandmate Colin Kenrick, plus a link to their Instagram so you can listen and feast your eyes. Hey, it's Danielle, Will, and Ryder from Pod Meets World. Thanks to our friends at Hyundai, we were able to record a very special episode for you guys at the one and only, wait for it, Boy Meets World House. Take a listen.
We are lucky to be sitting with Alan and Amy Matthews in the flesh, William, Rusty Russ, and Betsy Randall. Yay! Thank you. Thank you. When those those legends get here, let me know. (laughs) (laughs) You're here. You're here already. No, we didn't either when we were watching yeah, this that's day. The thing. That's we didn't the realize it until we uh, started getting into seasons three and four, and now Gosh. we're like, oh my God. You were both so good on the show, and we missed it because we were we young. We were kids and, and so self-involved. Egomaniacs yeah. and <laughs> didn't realize well, no, how great you were. We've talked about it. I think you just assumed everybody was as good as them. And, right. and then right. you get into, right. as you grow up and you work with other actors, you realize how <gasps> lucky we were yeah. to have you guys. This has been brought to you by the fully electric Hyundai Ionic 5. New episode out now. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash ConcertWeek to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is Here's the Thing. Butch Walker landed a major record deal with his very first band, the self-described hair band South Gang. He's on guitar here, their single, Boys Night Out. Impressive. But there was one skill Walker says the band was missing. When we did the South Gang stuff, we needed help with our songwriting because we had not really developed that part of the brain yet. And um, I said, can we get this guy Desmond Child to be our executive producer and co-writer? And that's the one thing the label did that I was psyched about is they got him. And um, he's, he's a legend. And describe him for people who don't know him. Well, Desmond was responsible for everything from huge... Kiss hits to uh, all of the big Bon Jovi hits. Uh, Alice Cooper, uh, he he's, he was like the hottest shit on the street at that point as a songwriter. Like he couldn't be beat for that for that kind was of. Was he a Brit? No, 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 no. He was. I think he was out of New York. Um, but you know, Desmond's gay, and so when I started going over to work with him, me and the singer started going over to his house and working with him. We were just these dumb rednecks from Cartersville, Georgia. And I'd never even met anyone gay yet. And I was just part of the, the tunnel vision and the blinders that came from being in a small town where you just thought that that was weird, which is a bummer. And, you know, I didn't know how to, I was standoffish about it. And I remember one time we were working on a song. Keep in mind, I was like 20. Uh, and I said um, something about a lyric. And I said, oh, man, that's gay. And Desmond goes, what do you mean gay? And my heart fell into my feet because I was like, oh, fuck. I just insulted my idol. And when I came up with the next line, it had love in it. He goes, what do you know about love? You're not even a person yet. 
and he was right. And, and that's exactly, I think when he said that, it made me think a lot about, you know, I needed to open my mind up to a lot of things. And, you know, coming out here did that and going through those experiences did that. Um, we made a, a record together and then, of course, that nothing happened from it. And we, we fell out and never talked again. And, um, God, 20 years later, this was not that long ago, um, I was in the uh, airport with my wife and child, and we were in the airport at the American Airlines lounge or whatever, and I saw this guy, and I said, I'm having the weirdest deja vu. I was like, that looks like the guy that used to answer the door when we would go to Desmond's house to work. And then I look over, over his shoulder with two little beautiful blonde-haired boys, Desmond. And I was like, that's Curtis, and that's Desmond. They were together then, they're together now. And I walked over and I was like, Desmond. And I was like, I know you're not gonna remember me, it was a long time ago. And he just got up and hugged me and he goes, I've been following your career, I'm so proud of you. Oh, you're a person now. And (laughs) I'm a person now. Well, what's, when you're songwriting with someone like him, what does he teach you? He taught me everything. That was boot camp, like learning how to write songs with him. He was tough. You know, he taught me inner rhyme and melody and don't be afraid to be literal. Don't be afraid to, like, tell a story and reach for people's heartstrings instead of being too precious and too um, inside with it as far as, like, the lyric goes. And, I mean, that's why he wrote some of the biggest songs ever. And I think that that's a beautiful... That was a beautiful first crash course to go through in songwriting, and I took it with me all the way to now. Um, what's one of the earliest songs you wrote that you said to yourself, you know, you sit back and go, that's pretty good. That works. <laughs> what's a song you wrote that you really Way thought? later in life. I'd gone through a band uh, that had a marginal hit at radio later, uh, an alternative band called The Marvelous Three, and that was like... Um, that was like late 90s, um, and I wrote this song about selling out, <laughs> and sure enough, it got played on the radio and got us a record deal, and we sold out. And it's a good song, and I was, I was you know, proud of it, but it, I knew that there was so much more to learn, and, and I, wanted, I wanted to tap into more emotional songs, I guess, because, you know, that was a very snarky, cynical kind of a song. For a while, I couldn't write anything about love, because Desmond had scarred me. Uh, <laughs> And so um, I, I did this record called, uh, a solo record in the early 2000s called Letters. And I think I was most proud of that. I remember you met my manager backstage, Jonathan. He's been my manager for 20 years and he's pretty much the reason I, I'm even alive because I would have jumped off the ledge a long time ago if not for him. And um, that's the first time I remember him going, this is really good. <laughs> Cause he doesn't say that that often. And, um, and, you know, there was some songs on there where I remember that moment clicking. Um, there was a song on there called uh, Joan that I had written that I think was one of my more... I, I'm, I'm, I, I was really proud of it when I wrote it. Will um, you play it for us? I'll try. Colorado 
said she'd found God and a boyfriend as well. One that won't hit her or make her feel shallow. And there's a lot to learn about John. got to stay here for free I'm not a genius but I figured out there's a lot to learn from John You. 
Uh, you got me. You got me. Oh. Um, you got me. Um, no, I just, well, I just, you know, I just think that you, um, you know, you play and you're this wonderful guitar player and you're wonderful, this wonderful singer, musician, and then other people want your opinion about what they're supposed to do. That's a huge leap. They trust you to help them decide, where am I going to go? I want your advice. For better or for worse. Well, yes. okay. But how does that begin? Who's the first person that comes to you and says, help me? Well, um, <laughs> I was making our own band's records yeah. because uh, we couldn't afford studio time. It was very expensive back in the day to get right. into a really good studio. And back in the day, there was no computers to make records on you had to make them on these big expensive tape machines and boards and big studios and it was you know two thousand dollars a day in some of these places and like that nobody had that kind of money when you're making a demo to get shopped for a record deal or whatever and demos usually sounded terrible if they weren't recording in big studios very hard to make recordings sound great Whereas now on computers, you know, everybody makes their records on computers and they sound like a record the minute they just opened up the fucking computer and hit play and it's like even the demo sounds like it should be on the radio but um i was making records in my parents garage and i set up a little makeshift studio and i would record all these um punk and metal bands in atlanta 100 bucks a day 200 bucks a day whatever i could get you know they weren't really demos they were people would make their independent records and they would press them on cds at the time and they would sell them at their shows and whatever um, and I did some bands uh, that started to get noticed a little bit. Uh, back after, after I moved back from L.A. to Atlanta, we moved back there and we lived there for better part of 16 years. And um, that was pretty much uh, where I started really figuring it out and, get, and honing the craft, so they say, and getting really good at recording with very little gear in a very little space. And the band that I mentioned that had the the marginal hit song at alternative radio the marvelous three i recorded that whole record in a living room with like two microphones and i did the whole thing uh just beginning to end i had learned how to record on this newfangled software called pro tools <laughs> on a very archaic mac computer and i had to learn it all by scratch uh and so that song ended up getting picked up and started getting played and then all of a sudden i had um, record companies calling that with their artists going, hey, who, who produced that song? And I'd be like, well, I did. Like, who recorded it? I did. Who, who sang it? Who played it? Who wrote it? You know, and it was like, I did. So I started getting asked to work on other people's uh, records Such finally. Um, see, one of the first things was um, there was a band called SR71 that I did a song for that, uh, that became a bigger hit and they, they kind of wanted a song like that song that I wrote that was for my band. And so we did one, and it got bigger than my own band's song. And I was like, hmm, I might like this job. And then um, this uh, girl, Avril Lavigne, called. And, <laughs> and um, then Katy Perry, and then, and then Pink, and then, um, you know, and then from there it just went kind of nuts. I had, like, Fall Out Boy and Weezer and Panic at the Disco and... Uh, now Green Day. Let's hear it. Let's hear it. Uh, so, it's a, it's a is cool it job. fun? Yeah, it's is a it lot fun? of fun. It's a fun job. And it comes with some some shit sometimes, and sometimes you come home and you're like, 
God, I'm so bummed. I don't want to do this. And, and I'm, I'm not going to name names. It's not necessarily because of an artist. It's just you can just have a bad day, and you can have a bad day with the artist, and you can have a bad day uh, with your gear. You can have a bad day not being able to like, feel like you're giving any direction or having anything to contribute. And you know, back to answer your question a little bit about like, how, what goes into it is you know, it, there's a lot of you're, you're wanting to, these people are wanting, they're leaning on you to offer up some sort of gold fairy dust that doesn't exist to right. be to like you know make this magic happen and sometimes that's not there but sometimes you, i found that a lot of it 90 percent, was just bullshitting my way into this business and just saying i got this i know what to do and um and so a lot of it was just common like commandeering the ship and being like okay um let's let's try this song in a different key let's try it with a different groove let's try it with this let's um you know, let's, let's, uh, whatever. I mean, there's guys that have methods that they will torment the artist and, to, to, and, you know, mental manipulation to get something out of them. That's not me. I don't do that. And right. I, I'm, and then there's other people that just want to do it 50 million times because they're not hearing it the way that they're hearing it in their head. Um, and I, that's not me either. Um, I, I tend to go with, the the this sounds cliche but i go with gut like if it's like making the hair on my arm stand up maybe that's going to make millions of people's hair stand up as well on their arm and some people will just scrap it because they want perfection or they want or they want it to be technically precise and um i i don't care about that my favorite records growing up had all that stuff you know you could hear you know, on Led Zeppelin records, you could hear the John Bonham when he's playing, you can hear him in the microphones going, ah, 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 <laughs> like that sometimes. And you're like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> and um, and it, it, that's, that's the stuff that makes like a little stone teenager in their bedroom with headphones on go mental. They love it. So let's talk about your concept album. What was the genesis of that? Oh, um, well, so... I started the record um, a few years ago, uh, and I just I started realizing that when I was writing this new batch of songs, maybe for a new record, that I couldn't really couldn't really write about anything that was the typical love story, breakup, you know, you know, my girlfriend left me, I'm sad, you know, and that's there's a lot of songs there, you know, to pick from in the world, and I just kind of got burnt out on that, and all I could think about was one of the problems that seemed to be growing in America and, and, and rearing its head, it actually had always been there, but I think just has gotten a lot more exposure in the last few years, and that's hate. You know, I just was like, well, nobody wants to hear this kind of fucking record from me. But um, I couldn't stop writing all these songs about it, and it was just really hurting my heart. and And bearing on my conscience too of growing up in it and thinking about how how I got out of it and how a lot of people I know haven't and how it's affected relationships uh you know with with even relatives and friends and um and so I started writing this record and my and Jonathan my manager was like sounds like you're kind of making a rock opera like there's an actual storyline and I didn't think about it at the time and I was like it, you're right, it is. And so I started hunkering down and writing this story, you know, loosely based on my, my childhood and my life and my dad and a lot of characters are in the story. And I've had it done for two years. I sat on it. And I didn't think I wanted to put it out. 
And, um, you know, it's not like I thought, oh, the problem's going to go away. <laughs> you know, the problem's not going to go away. And I'm not, like, trying to change the world. I, I, nobody knows who the fuck I am anyway, so it's not like if I put a record out, there millions of people are going to go like, oh, you know, or, or fuck you, you know, when they hear it. But, um, but I had to say I'm going to do this, I'm going to put it out, because it weighed too heavy on my heart not to. But Is there a title? It's called American Love Story. And um, it's basically, you know, about um, this white middle-aged bigot who grew up with a pretty bad father and never really was taught love and only kind of rehearsed what he heard. The, the, the problem with this record is that a lot of the songs are sung through his perspective. And that makes it a little tough to not preface it when you're playing some of those songs live because people are going to be like, what the fuck did he just say? Yeah. You know, so, um, but I was really intrigued and inspired by uh, an old uh, record by Randy Newman called Good Old Boys uh, that, uh, that was a very, I thought, a very controversial record when it came out, uh, talking about the problem of, like, racism and hate in, in America. You going to play a couple songs for us? Yeah, I can do that. Said help was on his way Put my hands up upon his chest And said it'll be okay As he focused on my likeness I could see it in his eyes 
Everything he taught to hate would finally save his life. And the irony about this, I told him with a smile, yeah, your God must work in stranger ways than your heart will allow. Well, he fought his hand behind the tears, eyes bloodshot and dim. His rebel flag tattooed hand holding mine to him. He said, please don't blame me for how I turned out. I learned a little late. I was born into what I became, and you were born this way. I can try to show compassion. It might be all I got out here in the open. Whether I like it or not. Now, was it something that you, uh, uh, it's done, or you still, you recorded it? It's done. It's, it's coming done. out. Late. I did it. Yeah, it's done. Thank you. It Thank you. It's very um, I'm excited for people to hear it. It's not all fucking bummers. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually, it's a very upbeat sounding record, and the kind of the way, the way I made it was I wanted it to reflect um, the timeline uh, musically to what I was listening to on the radio uh, during my upbringing, so it kind of, uh, when people hear it, it'll, if they're around my age, then uh, they might get a kick out of it because it kind of goes through the styles of songs. It's very uh, late 70s, early 80s uh, vibes on a lot of it. And um, it's pretty fun production. I do a I lot of whooping ass guitar solos. <laughs> I can't wait to hear it. But you have a son who's how old? James, he's 12. Does he, is he a musical? He is. He can sing. He does theater. He's done like eight plays already. He's killing in theater and uh, very much an arty, quirky weirdo, and I love it. I think we should, I think we should uh, uh, take a request. Who here has a burning desire? I can't hear anything they're saying. <laughs> Saying things that always seem so right 
for many. I wake up and wonder why I never left here. Because <laughs> them Georgia girls all get hammered and get a beard in their face and they just start getting all fucked up and talking about politics and race. And I can just like, tell them, I say, stop and shove the cotton further down my ears. That's what I do. And my hands are full of that sticky sap on your backyard, Georgia Pie. The closest thing to you I'm gonna find So talented, it's unbelievable how great you are, how talented you are. Let's give it up, Butch Walker. And thank you all for coming. Butch Walker's groundbreaking rock opera American Love Story drops May 8th. My thanks to Zach McNeese for mixing the live music in today's episode. I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is Here's the Thing.
Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.